When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So here we are, ladies and gentlemen, standing, as it were, on the edge of the next bit. You know, uh, the bit where everyone starts to work out that they can't continue living like hermits, the bit that where they can't assume they'll never have to do another day's work in their entire lives, and the realisation that the bubble, at some point, is actually going to burst. It's the final Prime Minister's questions of the summer, and the last chance for Captain Hindsight, sorry, uh, Sir Keir Starmer, to make some kind of impression and land a punch on the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. What are the odds? Uh, you'd have to say they're not very good, are they? Because he has been incredibly boring, incredibly forensic, and incredibly useless, is what I would say say. Uh, he makes it into Plank of the Week this week. We'll be telling you more about that later on, of course. We'll bring it all to you live in the company of political correspondent Charlotte Ivers. Coming up later on, we'll be joined once more by historian and archaeologist Neil Oliver. I'll be asking him why we have become such a humorless and frightened society and how on earth we're going to fix it. And of course, we want to hear from you as well. You are the eyes and ears of the independent Republican Mike Graham and we need to know what you're doing, what you're seeing, what you're hearing. Are you going back to work? If not, why not? Are you going to start wearing masks as of uh, this Friday? Uh, and what are you going to do if somebody tries to find you for not wearing one? Up first, though, it's former Tory MP Stuart Jackson with his take on how the rest of the summer will go for the government, where we are with China and Russia, and what Downing Street will be focusing on in the weeks to come. And we'll be finding out how a name can change the way people view you and can help forge your personality. This is after two parents decided it would be a great idea to name their child Lucifer. <laughs> well done. 0344 499 1000. Russell Quirk also joins us with the news that landlords are making rental properties even smaller than ever. And on our homeschooling section today, we're going to be learning all about the internet. What to do, how to do it, when to do it, when not to do it, and how it all came about in the first place. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, you can always tell when you've hit the sort of dog days of summer when it comes to Fleet Street, when it comes to newspapers, because basically uh, all the newspapers can't decide on what the story is this morning. The front page of the Daily Mail, now tame the Russian bear. Uh, UK spies took their eye off the ball on Putin's hackers. London turned into a laundromat for dirty money. Uh, The MI5 organisation to get more powers, uh, it says. And then, of course, they've got the story uh, from Mike Pompeo, who met up with a lot of Tory MPs yesterday and uh, several members of the government, including Boris Johnson, uh, who says the World Health Organization chief killed British virus victims. Quite an extraordinary tale. Uh, and Prince Andrew makes his way uh, to the top uh, of the stories on the sun uh, because apparently somebody's come out of the woodwork from the Jeffrey Epstein pedo island to say that he once uh, had a massage from somebody uh, who was topless. So, Prince Andrew makes it to the plank of the week as well this week, which is also very interesting. Let's go to Stuart Jackson first up, though, and find out what he makes of it all. Stuart, very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. How are you doing? It's a very interesting time, isn't it, when you come to the end of the sort of summer season, if you like, in in Parliament, and everybody goes away for the summer, because this year, probably nobody's really going away for the summer, and it's kind of, there's quite a lot to do. Well, I think Boris Johnson and the Cabinet will be 
absolutely exhausted. Obviously, it's been a very unusual six months. Remember, at the beginning of the year, they were basking in the afterglow of uh, an 80-seat majority, fantastic election campaign. Mm. Now, uh, they're probably dog-tired, looking forward to a bit of a break from Parliament and looking to plan how they recover the political momentum uh, post-COVID. And obviously, central to that is getting the economy. You've been banging on about it every day, Mm. getting people out of their homes, into work, into shops, buying things and trying to, you know, kickstart the economy because we can't go on as we are. Even today, the uh, British Chambers of Commerce are saying that uh, businesses are only at 50% capacity. I mean, that's economically a disaster and, and presages a tsunami in unemployment at the end of the year unless things change. Well, this is the thing that I have been, as you say, banging on about, because my belief is, is that the government is going to have to start pressurising companies, I think, a little bit more than they are currently, because the companies are clearly quite happy to carry on as they are, because they found a kind of a reasonable way of doing business in which they're not spending too much money. Um, they're not having to host too many people in offices. And instead, um, they're sort of letting everybody work from home. They're allowing their their uh, their workload to sort of decrease slightly, uh, but they're still making profits. I mean, you know, I heard a story uh, this morning about some company profits which were less than they were supposed to be, but still forty million pounds. And you think, well, they're still making plenty of money then. Yeah, and I think there's a, a a degree of complacency from some companies, but the fact is, this is not a sustainable model for business and commerce to be supported by hundreds of millions, billions of pounds of taxpayers' money. It it can't go on. And and the the point is that post-Brexit, whatever happens, and I I still think there will be a deal, you know, the UK needs to be outward-looking, a global trading nation. It needs to consolidate its advantages. It needs to uh, have a better skilled workforce. And it needs an economy at 110%, not 50%. Yes, exactly right. And what's your view of what's been happening in the past few days with China? You know, clearly there's uh, an awful lot of friction going on diplomatically. We've seen Dominic Raab pull the uh, extradition treaty with Hong Kong. We've seen China kind of threaten some form of retaliation. Lots of people starting to talk about not buying goods from China. Where do you see that going in the next few weeks? Well, we've learned a lot of lessons in the last few weeks, and I think we've learned that the influence of the Chinese Communist Party has reached into uh, the the highest echelons of the British establishment and the political establishment. Mm. Now, that may not be as pernicious as it sounds. It certainly was the position when I was in Parliament. We took the view, I think people across the board took the view that if you engage with the Chinese, uh, and if you trusted them, took them at their word, that um, the free market economy and capitalism would give rise to freedom and democracy and free speech and things would change. I think that was, in hindsight, a big mistake mm. and it was naive. And I think we're quite right to say to the Chinese, you know, a possible genocide of the Uyghur people in Western China and uh, egregious infractions of human rights and ripping up an international treaty obligation in Hong Kong is not going to be tolerated by the international community. And I think the Chinese know that, and there will be a big pushback now. The next thing is going to be Hinckley Mm. C or Hinckley B in in Somerset. You know, the question is, do we want the Chinese 
having an intimate involvement with our nuclear power and our energy supply? And the answer has to be no, of course. Well, I would think so. Yeah, I mean, it'd be incredible if we were to go ahead with that partnership, particularly after what's been said uh, and what's been done. Um, so surely that's dead in the water, isn't it? And, and if it is dead in the water, then how do we proceed uh, with the building of those plants? It's going to be a difficult job and it's going to be uh, very challenging over the next few years to extricate ourselves from the influence of big Chinese money. But this, you know, their, their, their belt and road policy was about building influence through money, through investment, through universities, through intellectual capital, and of course, stealing our intellectual property, uh, our uh, copyrighted uh, products, uh, and taking them back to China. You know, th these people are very smart, and they've been very successful over the last uh, five years or so, 10 years probably, mm. since we've engaged with them. But obviously COVID has shined, uh, shined a, a very harsh light on uh, the uh, objectives of the Chinese Communist Party and, and the way China is run. And it's not in any sense a democracy and it's not going, in fact, it's going backwards in terms of democracy freedom and human rights. No, quite. And after the uh, report uh, from the Russian situation that was published yesterday, um, it's it's clear that there's a problem there, but it's kind of a bit of a, of, of a, of a loose accusation, is it not, to say that, you know, London is the world centre for sort of laundering dirty Russian money. Uh, we shouldn't be encouraging people to come in. I see this morning the government are saying there might be some kind of registration required. Not quite sure how that would work. Um, you know, it's a strange time, isn't it, around the world? Yeah, we all knew that the Russians had a great influence in the city of London and in commerce uh, in the UK and have done for a dozen, 15 years. Mm. Not everyone is is a supporter of Putin. A lot of people came to London in particular as, you know, alienated from the regime. Uh, their lives were in danger, actually. So they're not all uh, Putin cheerleaders. It's a bit rich, though, for Keir Starmer and the Shadow Home Secretary to be lecturing the government in hindsight and what we should have done about Russia. Six months or eight months ago, they were campaigning to make a man prime minister who appeared on Russia Today and was paid for it, who said we should send the samples of the Skripal attempted murder uh, back to uh, Moscow to be analysed. And this is a guy that in the general election, of course, received stolen documents via a Russian hack. So. Mm. You know, I think I'll I'll take their protestations about what we should have done about Russian influence and collusion with a bit of a pinch of salt. I think the government uh, cannot reveal all the work they've done in counterintelligence against both China and Russia. Mm. Uh, but let's be honest, Mike, there was no smoking gun. Right. The, the likes of Carol Codswallop and The Guardian <laughs> and The Observer. It never ceases uh, were, to make me laugh that, I'm afraid. Sorry for chuckling. They were salivating at the idea there would be this, you know, historic smoking gun, this Watergate-style crisis that would blow the Johnson administration. And it just didn't appear. No. And, but isn't know, it great how they move from that, first of all, situation where they're saying basically that there's this huge connection uh, between corrupt politicians in this country somehow being funneled money from a place that doesn't have any money uh, to then they're now saying, oh, yeah, well, clearly they didn't do enough to stop these people trying to influence the election result, which it turns out wasn't actually influenced in the first place. Yeah. So what they're saying is that all the money the big banks, the Bank of England, Obama, Europe, B 
big business, didn't really matter. But a few bots with egg, eggs on Twitter, without any pictures, with six followers, they suddenly were able to swing people in Rotherham, in Burnley, in Birmingham yeah. to vote yeah. leave. I mean, it's a little insulting. And it's the continuation of the narrative that basically Brexit voters were misled. They were low information. They were just a little bit too thick to understand the issues. And frankly, you know, if people did think that the referendum result was stolen and was crooked, they would have voted for the Liberal Democrats yes. last December because they were the only party emphatically saying uh, it's fixed, it was a con, we're going to rip it up and stay in the European Union. And they got 11 MPs and about 10% of the vote. Yes, um, and which probably was a mistake as well, by the way, just a counting mistake. But, I mean, that's the other funny thing, is that it turns out that the one referendum that there may have been some influence peddled in was the Scottish independence referendum. Um, but suddenly the SNP have gone a bit quiet on that. Yeah, obviously you'd have to be naive not to believe that the Russians see it in their interest to destabilise a number of mm. European countries. If you look at Estonia, for instance... They launched a massive cyber attack not that long ago on Estonia and jammed their broadcasts and their uh, utilities, etc. You know, of course, it's in their interest to undermine the United Kingdom by seeking to break up a 300-year-old union uh, by facilitating the independence of Scotland. Um, but as you're, you're quite right, Stuart Hosey, who was one of the spokesmen yesterday at the press conference... Mm or the Intelligence and Security Committee, uh, funnily enough, didn't really major on that issue. And I, w I wonder why, because obviously some of the links between the SNP uh, and uh, Russian propaganda would be embarrassing to the SNP, mm. I yeah. suspect. I would, I would suspect so. And today we've got the final sort of Prime Minister's questions of the uh, uh, of this particular season. We won't be seeing them again until September. So last one of the summer, really. Uh, Sir Keir Starmer, uh, I probably like you have been quite disappointed with in terms of what he's done and what he's managed to do, what he's actually managed to achieve. I'm also happy to see that the sort of the loonies in the Labour Party is still out there. Barry Shearman MP this morning tweeted this. The decision to leave the European Union can no longer be regarded as valid or legitimate. We must now delay our departure and hold a fresh referendum <laughs> well i i would suggest poor old barry who i knew when i was in parliament should concentrate on issues much closer to home like for instance grooming gangs in huddersfield Very true. rather than geopolitics um you know he's been there for 40 odd years as mp for huddersfield and i suspect he needs to concentrate on uh more important local issues but well, he might, also find if he, he might also find if he walks around the streets of Huddersfield uh, that most people are quite happy that we've left the European Union. Yes, uh, a majority of people in West Yorkshire and South Yorkshire, as I understand, did emphatically vote to leave the European Union after consideration. The fact of the matter is a lot of people on the left are quite euphoric, uh, prematurely, in my opinion, about the performance of Keir Starmer. Uh, he's not Jeremy Corbyn. He can walk, talk and chew gum. He is a paid uh, lawyer, has been a paid lawyer. So, of course, he's articulate. But he's also dragging around the dead weight of an extremist Labour Party, yeah. about a third of whom uh, are, hold very extreme views on things like Israel, uh, on defence and security and policing. And if someone as talented as Tony Blair took the amount of time he did 
to reform and change the Labour Party, then I suspect that the hard work for Keir Starmer has only just begun. No, exactly right. And as far as the um, uh, the day-to-day is concerned, I mean, what do you suspect that Starmer will try and lay on uh, Boris? Because, you know, up to now... He's got this rather sort of tedious uh, methodology of asking one question about five different ways, regardless of what the answer is. Um, and that's kind of contributed to his inability, I think, to uh, to prove himself against Boris. So he's going to really have to try something different today, isn't he? Well, I think the, um, the people at number 10 will be uh, looking at how Starmer performs with focus groups. Uh, and in polling. And I do think there is some evidence from the fact that um, he's used it on several occasions that the Prime Minister is getting cut through, not just on the fact that Starmer's quite boring and dull and loyally, mm. uh, but also that he's a flip-flopper, that he, for instance, on keeping or reopening schools or keeping schools closed, one minute he's supporting the teaching unions, the next minute he's criticising the government for yeah. the schools not being open. And there were lots of examples of his inconsistencies. And I think that will be the narrative that Boris is pushing, that, you know, he's an opportunist, he jumps on bandwagons, he doesn't show real leadership, and sort essentially sort your own house out, Keir Starmer, before lecturing us on what we should have done, because this is a once-in-a-generation national crisis, and we've actually done not a bad job. Yes, no, I agree with all that. Finally, Stuart, I noticed that your uh, Facebook um, uh, uh, entry has changed slightly. You've got a new company on the go, Political Insight. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, it's a political intelligence, government relations outfit. It's actually made up of people who got it right, called it right on Brexit. And I think a lot of businesses now are thinking, well, we need to know a bit about how the Johnson government ticks and we need to make the very best of the challenge of Brexit. And I think that's really where we're coming from. And, and we, we hope to uh, be part of the success story of Brexit and the UK as an outward-looking global trading nation. Yes, absolutely right. Well, good luck with it, Stuart. I'll see you soon, hopefully, now that everything's back open again. Uh, we might be able to have that pint. Stuart Jackson uh, there talking about a great many things, including uh, the Russia report, the situation with China, the situation with Keir Starmer, the situation with Prime Minister's questions, what the government will be doing and getting busy with over the course of the next few days and weeks, because this will be uh, officially the sort of end-of-term report for the Tory party, for the government, for Boris Johnson and for the Cabinet. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Neil Oliver joins us just after the news at 11 o'clock. He's going to be telling us why laughter uh, is indeed the best medicine and why we need to be able to get our sense of humour back because it certainly does seem to me uh, that there's not an awful lot of people having much fun these days. They're all taking themselves far too seriously. They're all worrying far too much uh, and they're all taking offence at all manner of things instead of just laughing it off which is what we're supposed to do in this country isn't it 0344 499 1000 let's talk to professor sir carrie cooper psychologist and professor of organizational psychology and health at manchester business school because the story today in the sun uh, has a couple of parents going through a nightmare trying to get their boy's name registered uh, at the local registry office uh, when he was born um, a few weeks ago dan and mandy sheldon went to register um, their baby uh, after uh, having a very happy birth during lockdown uh, but the trouble was 
um, the person behind the desk said that they should not give the name that they wanted to give to the child because it would hinder the child's ability uh, to be taught in a school, it would hinder the child's ability to get on in life and it would hinder the child's ability to be taken in any way seriously because they wanted to name him, and they have now named him, Lucifer. Doesn't sound like the greatest idea anybody's ever had, but surely you should be able to name your child anything you want. Uh, so, Carrie, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Yeah, good morning to you. I Mark. mean, I love these. Uh, I love I these stories. We're going to have a lot of COVID Coopers and things <laughs> like that, aren't we? We're well, going to have lockdown. We're going to have names for children that are going to be of our time. Yes. I'm afraid. But it's not crazy. You should be able to name your child whatever you want to name your child. But you do get people, I think, who do this because they want their child. Boy, they w this child will definitely stand out. Right. I think it's about that, isn't it? Well, it's I suppose so. I mean, they're claiming. This... My name, I was born in Hollywood, right? Yeah. My mother was a Cary Grant fan. I was going to say. Took me to every movie. So my name's Cary Cooper, right. right? But when I was a kid uh, in L.A., in, in West Hollywood, uh, every time I went to school as a kid from five on, you know, everybody said, oh, we got Gary Cooper right. in our, you know. So, you know, names do make a difference to people. In the sense of, you know, they stick with you. They're certainly identifiable. You know, a John Smith is different from a Lucifer Smith. Yes. I mean, Lucifer is a pretty unusual name. And, of course, this couple are saying that, look, we're not particularly um, religious, so we don't see this as a name which in any way denotes the devil. Um, however, they say rather they like the fact that uh, in Greek mythology uh, it's rather a positive name and it means um, something rather good. So, um, again, I suppose the local council people say, well, you know, it's our duty to kind of warn the parents that if you give them the kid a stupid name, it's going to be a stupid name. I mean, we've heard before previously, Carrie, about how uh, some football fans will name their children after an entire football team yeah well how about brooklyn uh, well how about that very much <laughs> yeah no i mean i'm surprised that a local authority would do that you know it's up to the parents they yeah. want to have a crazy name or uh, a name that why should they say to them well, you do realize that this name could mean that your child gets you know the kind of attention you don't want your child to get but i, I don't think that's their duty to say that that's got nothing to do with them if the parents want to do it they do it any right. case, when you get older, you can change your name anyway. Right. Well, exactly right. I mean, because you've seen things like, uh, you know, Moon Unit Zapper, uh, and you've seen things like uh, Apple, the, the child of, of Chris Martin and Gwyneth Paltrow. But I've always thought to myself, if you're the, the, the child of, of a rock star, it doesn't really matter what anybody calls you because you've got your life is pretty much made anyway. You don't need to be successful yeah, in life. Got, you've, gonna... you've got that uh, uh, imprimatur, don't you? It's there, man. You've got a logo. Yeah. And you don't you don't lose it. But I think parents, some parents, you know, they want their kid to stand out in some way. And that's what they do. And they, they give him a funny name or alternatively a name that means something to them personally. Right. But again, in life, if you don't like your name, you change it. Yeah. I mean, Elon Musk has got a pretty unusual name, but it doesn't seem to have harmed his career. No, I don't think it has. <laughs> I, I don't think it really makes that much of a difference. I mean, it's a talking point, isn't it? Yeah. So I get called up and somebody will say, oh, hello, Gary. Right. Gary Cooper. Are you one of those people that corrects people who call you by the wrong name? I don't, actually. Right. I tend to say, no, my name is, you know, Gary, not Gary. Right. I don't do that. But I know a lot of people who do. And when I do a lot of media work, I still get the Gary from right. time to time. Well, I, you know, yeah, I, I get this uh, from time to time from people who will occasionally come onto the radio and call me Graham. Right, because I'm unfortunately I'm one of those people who's got two, see, two first names. One, isn't it? Well, the thing is, I, 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 mean, I you know, having two first names yeah. as your names, 
is a real issue. And sometimes I've done that myself with right. somebody who has two names and I've called them by the second name. Right. But, I mean, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's not two first names because Graham is a very Scottish name and it's a clan and exactly. it has its own tartan and all that. So don't get me started on whether it's a It's only a first name in England. It's not a first name in Scotland. The good news about it, I think, if you have an unusual name, is people start to, if they first meet you, say, well, hi, that's a funny name, Lucifer. Right. Where the hell did you get that from? Why right. did your parents call you Lucifer? And then they can tell the story. <laughs> right. Well, my parents call me that because in Greek mythology, blah, 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 right? right. So in a way, it's a starting conversation thing. I mean, I think Lucifer's not as bad as Damien, to be honest, from The Omen. <laughs> I mean, I had, a, I had a friend who called one of their sons Damien, and I thought that's really not a good idea. <laughs> exactly. It really is quite amusing. But, you know, it is funny, isn't it? Because as, as we become a more global society as well, and a more global world, you know, the footballers that we watch have got different names from the ones that we were probably bro growing up with. Yeah, you know, exactly. the, the, the people that we meet at work have got different names because they come from different parts of the world. So I think names have actually become far less important, actually. Yeah, and also more global. Yeah. So say, for instance, you're a Man City supporter like I am. Right. Uh, I know somebody who named their their child Sergio. Right. Right? And who's from Manchester. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, you, you get that. See, that's a bit embarrassing. Get a lot more of that now. I yeah. We're going to get people using all sorts of strange names. And also, it's something to do with the parents, mm. too, isn't it? Right. It's the parents trying to think of something novel that they want to be, you know, it... it it affects the image that other people have of them if they can come up with something really novel. Oh, yes. really? Is that what you're going to call? Right. And also, child? maybe maybe part of it... child and should they get attention later on in life. It's about them. I gave some thought to this. Really interesting name I've just come up with. Right. And also, maybe in the back of their minds, they're hoping that their child becomes so successful in life that they'll be known as only one name, like Madonna you know, okay. or Ronaldo. Yeah. Or like football players. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So when you, when you get to that status, when you've only got one name, and you know you can you can go with that, um, and, and and everybody recognises it. And I think you, yeah, it's true. Actually, you, I like that one. You can you can say like Trump is another one, but we better not go there because uh, let's not go to that, please. <laughs> I know you have to go. So Carrie Cooper, thank you very much indeed. Not Gary, but Carrie, uh, who's from the Manchester Business School. You must have a good name story for me because there's lots of people out there uh, who've changed their names or who've used their second name instead of their first name uh, because they don't like the first name uh, or because they just didn't like the name that they're parents gave them so they changed it later anyway one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on same goes for healthcare. that's why united healthcare offers flexible budget-friendly coverage for medical vision dental and more learn more at uh1.com it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, there's been two themes, I would say, to the show this week. One has been, you know, the uh, complications of wearing a mask. Some people don't want to wear a mask. Some people don't mind wearing a mask. Some people don't want to be told to wear a mask. And as of Friday, it will supposedly become compulsory for everyone to wear a mask when you go into a shop uh, or you are in a public place where you can't social distance. Now, you know, I personally don't really have a problem with any of it. If you want me to wear a mask to get on a public uh, train, if you want me to wear a mask to go into a supermarket, I'll do that. It doesn't really bother me. The people who say that they don't want to do it seem to be absolutely certain that it's some kind of mad plot to control everybody uh, and to stop people from identifying one another and communicating with one another. I'm not sure that's true. But let's talk to Neil Oliver, uh, who wrote a fascinating piece at the weekend, as ever, about humour and about how he was once at a Billy Connolly concert and he was almost uh, completely um, incredulously incapable of doing anything but laugh uproariously. Neil, a very good morning to you. Welcome back. Hello, Mike. Good to see your happy, smiling face. <laughs> well, listen, I'm sort of fairly irrepressible when it comes to, to having fun and, and laughter because I refuse to take life too seriously. Uh, I refuse not to make fun of things and I refuse not to laugh, really. But but your, your piece was right to say that we do seem to have collectively lost our sense of humour. I think, uh, obviously, we're in, it. We've, we're in and we've been in for months a serious situation mm. uh, but unfortunately, it's as a kind of a collateral symptoms. It seems to have been a kind of a new uh, puritanism, I would say. Um, we've, been, we've been encouraged to be terribly uh, poor-faced and terribly serious about everything at all times. And obviously, there are you know, the, the new uh, ideologies or versions of ideologies have kind of surfaced you know, in, in amongst all the hot feelings and all the hot tempers. And, and to speak out against any of that is, is being stamped upon very viciously. You know, it, certain ideas and, and creeds that are out there now are being revered as new religions that have appeared so spontaneously and so rigidly formed in what has you know, really been mostly a secular society. Uh, and people are being terribly careful not to, not to say the wrong word, just to trot out dogma, uh, just to say the things that they think will get them the pass to the, you know, to the rest of their lives and to be able to go about a business unmolested. Mm. Uh, and and part, there's definitely been a lack of humour. You know, the, the, what passes for comedy on, on mainstream television at the moment, I would say, is, is risible in, in the very worst sense of the word. It's, it's pompous, censorious sermons uh, sneering at, 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 uh, at various sections of, of the society. Uh, I don't feel inclined to laugh about it. I've, I've found that I've had to go mining for contraband, uh, you know, on YouTube and, mm. and other platforms, looking for the humour of the past. You mentioned... Billy Connolly, yeah. you know, me partly probably because of my upbringing and, and whatever. I, I, I revere Connolly as, as one of the funniest uh, human beings ever to draw breath. Yeah. Uh, but I've gone back looking for, you know, you know Bill Hicks, uh, Robin Williams, uh, Chris Rock, yeah. because I'm in, I'm in desperate need of the irreverence. I'm in desperate need of it. It's, it's like taking illicit drugs or something, yes. you know, going back and hearing someone, even just 10 years ago, uh, having the, the audacity uh, you know, to say the unsayable, because that's where we are now. You yeah. know, the unsayable is definitely there. Pretty soon, it'll be you'll be caught out for thinking the unthinkable. Yes. And I'm, I'm desperate for those people that just stood alone on a stage mm. 
public square, if you like, and just said what everybody was thinking, right. even though they didn't realise they were thinking it. Right. Well, this is why Ricky Gervais, uh, I think, for me and for an awful lot of people, is such a breath of fresh air, because he actually said, when he was being interviewed on talk radio uh, last week, I think it was, he said, well, luckily for me, he said, I'm so rich now that I can't actually be cancelled. So I just say what I want because I don't need to work anyway. And, and I mean, that's a terrible admission that he has to make. But when he stands up and does those uh, comparing jobs in Hollywood and absolutely rips the mickey out of every single millionaire sort of, you know, virtue signalling actress and actor sitting there, it's an absolute joy to behold. Yes. And, uh, you know, there's a long, there's always been that tradition of the, of the jester, you know, the, the court right. fool. Um, it's difficult actually to analyze the truth of it. We've been sort of raised to believe that the kings in the medieval period kept a, you know, a man or a woman who was their jester and yeah. that they could say anything and even make a fool of the king or the queen and, and be, you know, free from any kind of consequences. Yeah. Isn't it? We can interrogate the, the, you know, the available, uh, you know, literature. It's, it's difficult to tell exactly the extent to which that was true. Uh, although Pepys, Samuel Pepys in his diary certainly says something similar about mm. there being, you know, that, that, that potential. Um, but we, even if it wasn't the case in the medieval period, it's we have certainly uh, uh, assumed that as the right idea, and we absolutely 100% need to have among us those who, whether it's you know you're saying Ricky Gervais says he's insulated by wealth, but in any event we need people who are in some way empowered to say what we're what some people are thinking, you know, without fear of being taken to the stocks yes. or to the guillotine you know, to be humiliated or beheaded. It has to be there because we know it, it, it's, it's something that's as old as our species. I mean, even even chimpanzees get the joke, you know, when, when, when their great leader, you know, you know, trips over a branch yes. and falls on his face. Right. You know, there's, a kind of, there's a kind of a form of, of laughter that goes on. And the, and the continued success of that leader is partly dependent upon his ability to show that he can take the joke. Yeah. And, and one of the things that we also, and one of the things that we know, Neil, about sort of you know uh, very oppressive regimes is one of the first things that they do, uh, whether it's Saddam Hussein or Vladimir Putin uh, or in North Korea, is that they outlaw anybody making fun of the great leader. You can't do it. They make it illegal. Yeah, and we know, we, we all of us know, it's funny the kind of almost instinctive uh, understandings that we all have about the right and fair way to do things. And, and, and we know that because it's in the stories that go back into the distant past where we don't really know where some of them come from. You know, the, the idea of the emperor's new clothes, you know, where the, you know, the guy appears naked. Yeah. But everyone's so terrified of him that, that they're indulging him in this notion that he's wearing the most expensive suit of clothes that, that anyone ever had. And, and it takes a little boy to just point the finger and say, yeah, but he's naked and you can see his bits. Right. And, and then he's, it all, the whole thing falls apart. We know that we need this. It's an absolute vital corrective and safety valve uh, to be able to uh, to burst mm. the, the bubble of pomposity. And for us all, even in, in the darkest times, whatever, you know, during the, the blitz of World War II in London or, or in, in other desperate times, what do we know? It's that, that ability to, that the light of humour must never be extinguished. Yeah. If you lose that, then we've really lost. You, you can lose so much. You know, you can lose your name, you can lose your reputation, you can lose your house and all the rest. But if you if you lose that ability to see the ridiculousness of a situation and indeed the ridiculousness of, of ourselves and other people, 
then that's when the light goes out and that's when we're really in the dark. Yeah. I mean, can you can you sort of narrow down, do you think, when we did lose this uh, sense of humour that we had? Because you and I have, have spoken about this before, this kind of creeping, you know, uh, thought police situation that's been going on in this country for, say, the last couple of years, but, but over maybe the last five years, because it seems as though even just five years ago, we were much freer to say what we wanted. Still, it's a point a time or a date, isn't it? I think there's there's a there's a we always did have things that we weren't we had words uh, and and insults and certain things that we understood um, we wouldn't say. You know, there are th- the things that things that we sort of collectively arrived at that we thought were you know were just unsayable. Yeah. But, in the last few years, there seems to have been a significant switch where there are now things that we are being compelled to say. I think it's one thing when a group of people agrees collectively, just quietly amongst themselves, that mm. there are certain words they might not use, or, you know, swear words or, or insults or whatever, and they just, they just drop out of polite society. But there, something has crept in now where, where there are mantras and dogma mm being expected to say and that's significantly different this uh, this idea of things you have to say and you have to make it known uh, it's not enough just to think them uh, you have to signal that virtue by uh, at the first or any opportunity you get in the public space to say certain things yeah so that so that the mob will will accept you as neutered and not a danger yes and not, and not likely to challenge the you know this new this new faith it's it's so we are so we know this we know, we're aware of the fact that you know if when when you take away organized religion and, and instead of people believing in nothing they will believe in anything you know there's a desperate need in the human animal to to believe in something and to have faith in mm. something yeah and so, and so we're really very careful because lo and behold in the last just the few years these these dogmatic positions have have just swept in like a like a tsunami and engulfed us mm. all and it almost makes your head spin. Like you say, you look back and you think, when did this happen? Yeah, I know. When, I mean, I wonder, I wonder if, it, if, it, if it started with the kind of um, um, the group think of, of, of universities, of, of schools and of the kind of the early, very early sort of cancellation of, of some comedians from mainstream television who were considered to be either a bit too uh, close to the bone or a little bit too edgy or a little bit too racist, you know, and, and suddenly it all became a little bit vanilla. I mean, for me, you know, I, I tend, I, 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 I always find um, uh, the left of centre, the further left people drift, I think, in their, in their thinking. It, the, for me, there's a, there is a humourlessness that seems to come in very quickly there. Uh, and, and not seeing the joke. There's something terribly, there's something terribly serious about about that way of thinking uh, that loses its humour faster, I think, than, than when you drift to the other side of the line. Uh, and, and, and there is that, you know, the, you know, the old saw about sort of political correctness. I think there's a tendency to, to just to drift very quickly into terrain where it's safer not to rock the boat mm. and just to say the slogans. It's, it's very it's easy to come up with uh, you know slogans you know like whatever you know ban the bomb yeah. end poverty uh, you know you know don't be cruel to puppies right. it's, it's easy to come up with these short things but on the other side of the of the divide you know there, there tends to be more of a, 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 a an ambiguity and a and it's not quite so clear cut you know that uh, and we're not we're not so good at defining the thought on the other side of the line 
Um, but I, I once once humour starts to, to drift, you know, into that kind of uh, self-righteous um, manifestation of a, of a leftist ideology, I always find it a bit joyless. Yes. And, and I, I, I I'm aware of a of a joylessness generally. You know, there's a there's a joylessness in Scotland at the moment. Mm. You know, there's a it's no surprise. It's, it's never been any surprise to me that you know during the Reformation, Calvinism, you know that most austere form, that 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 origin story for the for the Puritan faith. You know, it, it did very well in only a few places, and one of them was Scotland. Yeah. You know, there's a there's a running gags. There always have been in, in the Scottish psyche about you know you're not here to enjoy yourself. <laughs> You know, and the idea that you know that the you know the old joke about the Puritans banning stand-up sex in case it led to dancing. Right. You know, yeah. There's all these there's all these lines uh, that you know that, that, that come out of a, a joylessness. There's a there is a there's a lack of joy that is soul sapping. You know, J.K. Rowling wrote about it for children in the form of the Dementors that that are, that are throughout the Harry Potter books. You know, these presences that suck the joy out of everything. Right. Take every happy memory from from you, every pleasure in food, every the pl- the pleasure of friends. There's a joylessness, and we have to be awake and alive to it because it's there. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there are forces out there ready to make us miserable uh, because a, a a miserable, sad population, I think, are, are just more inclined to do what they're told. Yes. You need you need the irreverence of people that are ready to stand up and say, do you know what? Do you know where you can take and stuff your right idea? Yeah. I'll tell you. You need that. Yeah. Because it's almost as like I mean, I'm I'm now very I'm very conscious now, particularly uh, when I'm out in in London, uh, post this kind of pandemic and post the lockdown. You're very conscious of being sort of quite careful what you say that people might overhear you saying, because there is this kind of almost Stasi-like um, uh, factor going on where people who say. Uh, look at you and see that you're making fun of something are almost, you know, disapprovingly looking at you and saying, why are you not taking life seriously? You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Why are you not miserable? Why are you not suffering? Uh, why are you not feeling sympathy for the people who are having a bad time? You know, and it's yeah. like they don't want you to have a good time, as you say. By all means, you, people could, you know, you mentioned the, the column that I wrote in the Sunday Times. Well, if you go in, the, the Sunday Times tweeted out the link to it. And if you, if you go in and look at the, the tweeted responses mm. to it, and indeed comments to the article itself i mean the, i got more of the usual torrent of <laughs> vicious bile <laughs> you know for having had the temerity to, to suggest that a good laugh might be in order yeah but but you, you met you, at the start before we started talking there you were, you were mentioning how you were feeling about the mask and yes. the wearing of the mask. and I, I broadly i'm in the same territory as you uh, you know there's i, I don't I'm, i haven't been going out much at the moment there's mm. one food shop that i walk into and i cover my face with a buff um, and I just abide by the, you know, what is this, this you know, the stated uh, regulation right. at the moment. And I'm, I don't know, I'm no scientist. I, I read the stuff where some say there's no need for masks. And then I read the other side who say, yes, we absolutely mm. do need masks. And I don't have a clue. Uh, so that, you know, I, I'm just doing what I'm told yeah. at the moment. But I think it, what's important is that we must pay attention that there will be consequences. There will be consequences for people. The, the mask uh, uh, solution might be there until as a vaccine and the vaccine could be months or who knows could be years away yeah and so we might be looking wearing masks in this way for a long time and we have to think about what it would be like for young children you know growing up in a masked world uh 
and, and, and adapting to that because as a, as a species, we've learned over millions of years to read faces. Yeah, It's what we do. And when you go out, I, I, partly why I'm staying away from places that I know will be masked is because I don't like not being able to read a face. Mm. When I say something, you can't tell from someone's eyes if they agree, if they're happy, if you've made them laugh, if you've inadvertently offended them. Yeah. You catch those visual cues in, in nanoseconds and you can you can modify what you're saying and you can and that, that's all part of the of the clever skill of successful communication. And I think as well, you know, Twitter and social media have encouraged people to be very, very cruel because the target of their abuse, they can't really see them, right. they're not really there. And I think masking has some of that potential to to, to take away the, the human reality of the person you're addressing your comments to. If you're not, you don't. When you send a cruel tweet, you don't see the heart. Right. Instantaneously, if you see a cruel thing to a person's face, you see the impact as if you've slapped them. It's instantaneous. Mm. So, if people are wearing masks all the time, I think there will be a, a, an increasing coarseness of the way we, we we speak to one another because we won't be getting those cues. And it, it, there's all sorts of of, uh, of of evidence of you know when soldiers are, are fighting other soldiers and, and firing guns. Um, there's all sorts of even anecdotal reports of, of untrained soldiers being dissing of, of missing deliberately, mm. you know, of shooting to not kill. And but then it, it changes when there's a rout. When a, when the other when a, when the, when, the, when one side breaks and turns its backs and starts to run away, mm. it's always been from 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 hundreds of years ago in the rout is when the real cruelty starts, the, the real inhumanity, because you're now you're now firing at people's backs, you can't see their faces. And for, for want of seeing their faces and their expressions of humanity, it's easier to treat them as lumps of meat yes. and crueler to them. So I think we just, I'm not saying don't wear masks or wear masks. I'm just saying we have to be sensitive, especially with children, I think, who are, who are still in the process of learning how to read yeah. their fellow citizens. There will be consequences that we have to be careful of. The act of, you know, we talk about face-to-face meetings and people say, you can't do it all on Zoom or on or on Skype right. or FaceTime because you want face-to-face time. We've we've absorbed over thousands of years the absolute necessity to look at each other's faces and to see them. And and standing in front of someone, you know, the, the, the fact that we as a species stand on our hind legs and expose all of our softest places, our vital organs, and indeed our faces to to our to whoever it is that we're dealing with is an act of profound trust. Mm. And profound bravery, you know, to stand, you know, animals stay down on their four legs with their faces down to the ground because it's a protective position. But to stand up and hold your head up high and look out at the world and and, and meet other people face to face, and that's what we talk about all the time, yeah. is foundational to the to what makes us treat each other as human beings. And similarly as well, the the the, the, the touch. Of, of another human being, you know, whether you're shaking hands with them or whether you're embracing them, <clears throat> you know, whether it's just um, um, a greeting of some kind or another. I think it's been quite difficult for a lot of people who haven't been able to do that, not only with um, with their friends, but even with members of their own family, that they haven't been able to go and give their mother a hug or something. I think maybe this, all, all in all, I think some of this, if we're optimistic about it and we take an optimistic line, we can see some of what's been happening as, a, as an important corrective an important reminder that you know in the last 20 years our, our 
our machines, the computers and the technology have got so quick and so fast and they read us, you know, you know, the, 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 buy, the, the retail sites online, they, they, they understand you better than they un, you understand yourself and they send you adverts for the next thing and, and all the rest of it. So we've been lulled into this feeling of, you know, the, the machines are doing it all for us. And I, I feel at all times we have to be so mindful of the necessity to remember that we're still the, 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 the simple creatures that we were 200,000 years ago when mm. our ancestors hunted mammoths. We are, we've got godlike technology, as E.O. Wilson, the American biologist, said, but we're still running on paleolithic emotions. We're still running hunter software. And we mustn't forget that. And perhaps the, the inequities and the cruelties that, that have been dished out to so many people over the last few months and the hardships of lockdown and, and, the, and the necessary complication of wearing masks in public places and all the rest of it should perhaps remind us of the, of the, the human animals that we are and we need to be able to read one another's faces and expressions properly to understand one another. And we need simple touch, certainly with family, but even with strangers, the shaking of hands, yeah. you know, the, the back slapping embrace, you know, that you see people doing all the time when they meet in the street, the kisses. We, we mustn't think for one moment that we can easily or readily in a matter of weeks and months move beyond that. We have drawn upon those things, touch, reading faces, face-to-face -face contact, being together. We have drawn on that for strength as communities for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. And if we think that we can just take it all away, stay in our houses, only see each other's eyes, not touch, and that there won't be consequences for that for us as individuals and as a society, then we're deluded. But, but perhaps we can look at what's been happening. Everyone looking around and saying, God, it's like we've walked through a, a door into a parallel universe where everything looks the same, but mm. it isn't. Right. Well, all things that aren't the same are the lack of humanity. And we just need to think, you know, we've had to deny ourselves our human nature for a while, some of the innate needs that we have, and look at the consequences. So maybe we just have to bear that in mind and think, God, let's have a laugh. Yes. I, I think we have to. I think we have to be even more proactive than that, actually, Neil. Because I think that those of us who are, by nature, shall we say, rebellious people who don't like being told what to do, at the moment we feel as though we're being told what to do by the kind of the bigger group of people who seem to enjoy being told what to do. You know, I was talking to somebody yesterday uh, when I was out having a drink, saying that you know when Beth Rigby from Sky News asked the Prime Minister, "Can I sunbathe on a Sunday uh, or a Monday?" I thought that was kind of peak ridiculousness. It's like, well, sunbathe whenever you want. You know, you don't really need the government's permission to sunbathe, you know, and you don't need to be told Sunday's OK or Monday's not OK. You know, you just need to get on with your life. We've spoken, we've spoken about this before. I think you know, a couple of weeks ago, you know, I mentioned that I have, it's definitely in my nature. I always used to be terribly disappointed when I found out somebody liked the same book as me, yeah. the same music as me. I used to think, oh no, that's that ruined. Mm. I, I had this inbuilt need to be doing something that is me, that hopefully nobody else was doing. And I don't know if that makes me a rebel, but I think I was always wary of, uh, you know, the, the pack or, or, the, or, the, or whatever was considered to be right. the popular thing. And I was bloody minded about finding things Absolutely. that nobody else had heard of and nobody else was listening to so that I could be pompous about it until somebody rightly put me in my place. Yeah. And, but I, I mean, you know, up here, you know, I, my my uh, uh, my uh, politics run or my ideas run towards the continuation of the United Kingdom, which obviously, for for independence-minded Scots, you know, makes me anathema. Right. Um, but I'm, I 
absolutely bloody-minded in my determination that I have the right to think what I think and to say what I say. Uh, and, I'm, you know, I have not been... And, and you, I will guess not what? You actually do have that right. You still have it. Yeah, of course I do. And I'm not, I'm not in the least bit deterred. You know, I like... It's part of... It's in my nature to enjoy the cut and thrust of argument. You know, I love being, you know, contradicted and challenged and having the opportunity to do it back. And it was, it was the way I was, it's the world that I grew up in. But for some reasons, suddenly the world has changed into this place where you're not allowed to dispute. You know, you're only allowed to trot out well-rehearsed dogma. And that is the, you know, that's no life at all no. for me. I have to be in a culture, in a civilization where if I feel like it, I can get up on a box and say something that's against the mainstream. Otherwise, what kind of what kind of freedom in life is that anyway? Of course, absolutely right. Listen, I'm terribly sorry, Neil. We're out of time yet again, but fascinating conversation as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, and we will continue uh, to push back um, against whatever it is that is pushing towards us. And I sometimes think to myself that I'm doing it just because I want to do that. It's not actually about the argument. It's just about making sure that you're having an argument. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Prime Minister's question is just pretty much coming to an end. Uh, Keir Starmer not really landing any punches, I would have thought, uh, on Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister. And he won't now be able to do so uh, until September. Uh, so he didn't really take much of an advantage of that. But it is that time of the day uh, when we get into our homeschooling gear and we start doing the homeschooling. Because even though today, for an awful lot of people at state school, certainly, uh, is the final day of school, we're going to continue our homeschooling because we think it's a great service, uh, not only to all of you listening, uh, but it's also really an interesting way of finding out stuff that you thought you should have known, but in fact you didn't. We're going to talk now to Professor Thomas Crick, who's Professor of Digital Education and Policy at Swansea University, because we're going to find out all about the internet. Professor Thomas, a very good afternoon to you. Hi Mike, how are you doing? Yeah, very well indeed. Thanks very much for uh, talking to us. I mean, we've got lots of kids listening to this, all of whom probably have never lived in a time when there was no internet. Um, but when I tell my children stories of what used to happen, uh, certainly in the newspaper business, and how you used to find things out before the internet was around, they look at me as if I've gone completely stark staring mad. But, you know, tell us about the origins of it, how it started, and, what, and, what, and who first used it, I suppose, would be an interesting question. It's quite hard to see the kind of recent history, and we've seen the impact both kind of, um, I suppose, economic, uh, cultural, so sort of the societal impact of technology, and particularly the internet. And mm. I suppose we, I wouldn't be speaking to you today without the benefits of the internet, because I can't come into studio. So um, I suppose the, the impact in, in, in our post-COVID world is, is has been profound, but we've seen this massive uh, technological shift from the 1990s onwards. Um, I suppose there's very there's, there's increasingly few people who remember the benefits of um, of dial-up broadband and the wonderful tones of kind of connecting to the internet and it being very very slow. But I think you know the example you gave before around um, how 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 did we disseminate information? How do we communicate? How will we entertain in a pre-internet world? Is actually increasingly hard for people to understand and for them to to realise the impact it has on their lives. Yes, I mean, funnily enough, I was watching um, last weekend. I think it was the uh, they they reran the opening ceremony uh, for the 2012 yeah. Olympics, and one of the people who was at the opening ceremony was the guy that invented the internet. 
Well, so yeah, so so Tim Berners-Lee, that, that, that's kind of an interesting point to pick up around um, the, the the challenge of terminology. So we seem to we conflate the the internet with the World Wide Web. Yeah, and I suppose it, for, for many people, it, it means no, there's no difference between the two. But essentially, the the internet is a is a global interconnected computer network, which is essentially a network of networks. So there's all these various different networks that connect together. They could be public, they could be private, they could be academic, they could be governmental, and with kind of varying levels of access and information. And then there are all these services and layers on top. So the World Wide Web is essentially a service that on top of the internet that provides kind of you know access to information. And then you can access all these different applications and, and, and various ways that you know, people interact with the internet. So um, email, you know, video on demand, mm. um, you know, kind of uh, so, social social media and all these other kind of various services that we that we delight and we're entertained by now. Right. And this is possibly going to sound an idiotic question, but where is it all? Where where is it? Where is it? The internet. I, I think that's a great question. You don't have to think about it. This is it's hidden infrastructure, right. and it's, it's it's globally distributed. So essentially, uh, no one owns the internet. I suppose obviously countries and and private companies own individual parts of the internet because they own the underlying infrastructure. So that you know the fiber optic cables mm. that connect that connect the global internet, or they own specific servers and machines that that provide access to information and data. But I mean that, that's that's part of the thing. You wouldn't be able to see it necessarily as you're walking around the street, so mm. you wouldn't really think about it. But essentially, it's everywhere. It's you know, it's under the, it's on the seabed. The cables that connect, you know, Europe to the to the US, um, and essentially that provides the ability to access information and connect with people all over the world. You know, essentially instantaneously. Yeah. And what it is now, will it sort of maintain that capability? I mean, will it change? I suppose is the question. Will it will it, will it do more? Um, because it's already got kind of all the information that we know. And I guess if we yeah. find more information then it will have more information. But will it kind of change its nature? I think that's part of the challenge. And that's that's where we've seen the, the move away from, you know, in its, in its very earliest days, the inter, the internet, the, the kind of off the back of, uh, you know, significant developments in, in the UK in the 1950s and 60s, and obviously uh, kind of more in the US from the 1960s, 70s onwards, then actually it was it was largely an academic network. So mm. it was, but, but universities were connected together. And obviously we've seen this massive shift in the 80s and the 90s when there were the development of worldwide standards. So all these machines could, could interconnect and communicate really easily. And then from the late 80s and early 90s, you had the development of the World Wide Web. And suddenly it became much more of a kind of commercial and, and publicly accessible uh, resource. Um, and I think obviously the, the, the profound shift since the 90s to where we are now, that's it's kind of incredible, our dependency on, on things that are available on the internet and are accessible. Mm. I think the challenge will be kind of the, the continued scaling because we do have this expectation of instantaneous access to information, you know, um, high bandwidth, high connectivity, you'll be able to access access everything anywhere and I think people you know the idea that you can go into the countryside and you can access the internet and and tweet and view videos uh, from iPlayer or from from Netflix and that's kind of how people um, expect our kind of digitally connected world to be like yeah. all the time. I mean I suppose the advent of 5G as and when it comes will, will, will make everything a lot quicker but there's still huge portions of certainly this country and I, I presume other countries as well where you can't really access it um, whether you've got mobile data or whether you've got Wi-Fi, because you know there's just there's just not a very good connection somehow. Yeah, so I suppose if you think about um, hist historically, the the internet has been very kind of Western world and has largely been in, in the English language. So yes. there's kind of interesting sort of cultural uh, impact about how issues are discussed or how they're kind of represented. But yeah, you know, I think if you look at um, the development of, of you know the idea sort of the development in um, certainly in Africa where they they are not going to have um, massive investment in kind of fixed 
uh, line sort of telephone systems it, it is moving immediately to mobile so actually think about the kind of the, the technological advances to allow uh, huge amounts of people to kind of connect to the internet and the, you know the major population uh, countries so India China um, I suppose in China is a good example of where actually you don't you, they don't have full access to the internet like we would kind of mm. expect and, and kind of enjoy enjoying the uk but then um your other point around sort of digital exclusion so actually the the, the the inability to access the internet or to to enjoy the services and, and the availability of all the things online that is still a massive problem because mm. there are clearly rural parts of the uk where it's very very hard to connect even but, with you know 3g 4g yes and uh, is that likely to improve i mean is that a sort of a bandwidth issue or is it a, a, a mast issue what is that it's it's a cost issue for sure because right. we're talking about major kind of national infrastructure investment and i suppose essentially there are there are parts of the uk where it will be at some level it's economically challenging to invest in it because there, there's not really the kind of cost benefit from from the, the the number of people it serves so you know that's a certainly a real challenge for parts of wales where you don't have the population density to um to kind of pro to provide that info or to, to to build that infrastructure that's just the, it's the same across all of the uh, certain parts of the uk where you've got essentially the last three percent of the population will always be really really challenging to provide you know that you can't it's very difficult to expect the same sort of um connectivity and bandwidth as you would in in the middle of a major major urban area no of course and as far as the regulation of it goes as you say china and and some other countries do limit access to various bits of it but the regulation issue is an interesting one for me because we talk a lot about freedom of speech uh, in this yep. day and age and how places like the usa have a much more um i think realistic view of freedom of speech than say we have because we actually in terms of things like social media we're kind of struggling to know how to control that how to regulate it whereas in america they worry much less about regulation i think that regulation is a key issue particularly because as i said no one owns the whole internet in its entirety so actually when you start to regulate or um essentially kind of censor parts of it it's non-optimal because mm. it's not meant to work that way so actually the idea that the, the, when it was developed as an academic kind of infrastructure it was self-regulating it would reroute if there were any problems so i think that is a real challenge particularly we've seen this kind of shift around um the, the types of content you know not illegal content but perhaps people have make kind of moral judgments or political judgments about what they do and they don't want to see but also we're starting to see that because it's such an integral part of our society culture and economy and actually governments clearly want to you know there's mass surveillance data retention and regulation that you know they're, they're, they're ta you know, tapping into the wider kind of internet because uh, there's a, there's either national security issues or there's um you know there's uh, essentially sort of mm. cyber security kind of national defense issues and that's another issue i suppose we could explore uh, because you know the chinese government at the moment is not exactly very happy with with what britain is doing um some people fear that there might be some kind of cyber attack launched um and i suppose we are as as a world now more vulnerable because of the fact that we are all hooked up to this network yeah, and, and it's part of our critical national infrastructure. If you think about uh, the idea, of, you know, essentially why you, you don't necessarily need to invade a country, you could knock out its power grid. Mm. And that's a much more effective uh, right. way of, of crippling a, a country. And I think, um, you know, hence why we've seen this uh, major discussion about um, our dependency on on companies like Huawei and how in, sort of integrated they are into our critical digital infrastructure. And, you know, there, there are clear uh, kind of ramifications around dependency, you know, in, in 
years gone by, it was about dependency on making steel. Well, actually, now it's about making critical digital infrastructure. Mm. And I suppose we've seen even the discussions about the Russia report that's been published this week. You know, the idea that the way that you can manipulate and sort of shape public discourse online is clearly challenging. And that's not talking about censorship or or kind of worries about free speech. It's about actually there are there could be malicious actors who are able to shape and manipulate discussion because this can have an impact on democracy and how people are influenced to vote. Sure. And and finally, what about the dark web, which which I hear an awful lot about, but I have no idea really how to find. I don't really want to find it, I don't think. But, um, but it sounds like a pretty nasty place. It, it can be. I mean, I suppose... Uh, uh, a definition of the dark web is around is is basically websites or resources that are not on the publicly available internet. So, for example, you can't find them through Google or other mm. search engines. So, actually, you know, they're they're just things that are kind of they they are accessible to people with you know with with a specific browser. Um, so that they're not kind of hid they're sort of hidden in plain sight in some respects. But um, there is clearly an underlying kind of uh, you know if we're talking about the kind of the, the the proper dark web where you are able to do things like you know you could procure drugs or there are a range of different things that people may want to access and, 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 and obtain on the dark web and that's really really hard to police because it, because it's not part of the publicly accessible internet or web then it makes it very very difficult to you can't search for these things so actually it's all passed around word of mouth and um and you know essentially it's just about you need an address to view these resources and you know there's a thriving kind of e-commerce um uh, uh set of websites that, that sit on the dark web that provide services and resources to people who want certain things Indeed. Thank you very much indeed. Professor Thomas Crick, Professor of Digital Education and Policy at Swansea University. See, I told you you'd learn something about the internet that you didn't know. Uh, and I've certainly learned an awful lot about the internet uh, that I didn't know. That is homeschooling. We'll have loads more of that, of course, uh, in the coming weeks. Even though uh, the kids have actually technically now stopped going to school, we will still continue uh, with our homeschooling feature because we think it's very useful. Uh, and if you are still trying to homeschool your children, uh, then I think you'll find at 12.30, even if it's only a 10-minute break, you get a break from doing it all talk radio across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio if you enjoyed that be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1 monday to friday on talk radio via dab online or via the talk radio app and if you have an opinion on the stories we cover we'd love to hear from you call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.